So we've got another bonus episode for you guys today. So what uh, what this episode is about is I, myself and John Snyson were guests on Kirk Chisholm's podcast, The Money Tree Podcast, and how his format works is he has one main guest and then he will have panelists that are invited back. Well, I hooked him up with John Snyson as his main guest, and so John, uh, on a separate day, was giving his interview, and then myself, along with two other panelists, then basically, uh, you know, we're, you know, talking about what John had to say, except the other two panelists, I mean, I had just woken up, I was, because, you know, everybody else, you know, uh, well, at least Kirk was filming on the East Coast, uh, you know, I wasn't in a great mood that day, and I get on the panel, and all of a sudden, the very first thing I hear during the pre-show is, uh, yeah, you know, I wanted to take a look at what John had to say, but also I decided to hear what Paul Krugman had to say about this stuff, and so as soon as I heard the other panelists, uh, Barbara mentioned that, which she's a very nice lady, uh, you know, she's you know, definitely has always treated me very nicely, even though I'm this, you know, crazy libertarian guy. Uh, but, you know, I had to push back. And, you know, Kirk is probably the only guy out there who's really, you know, technically my boss. But, you know, I still, you know, you know, brought the heat, uh, didn't let them get away with some of the statements they were making. And, and then the other lady, you know, she's always been nice to me as well. But, you know, they're just, you know, we're in the final end game stages here. So, you know, trying to sugarcoat things, trying to say everything's going to be all right and trying to, you know, uh, you know, minimize what's going to happen at this stage of the game, I think is absolutely not the thing to be doing. And so I, I basically don't have time for anybody who doesn't get it at this stage and not saying that those two necessarily don't get it, but, uh, yeah, you know what, they don't get it. And so they are very nice. I like them, but you know, I was, I was just not in the mood when I woke up. The first thing I hear is how great Paul Krugman is. And you know that made for an interesting show, and so this was not a libertarian, volunteerist, anarchist type, uh, you know, audience. This is a very, very mainline type audience. And so let me know what you guys think. Uh, you know, I did have uh, Kirk tell me that he thought I was a little bit too dark on this one, and that you know I should lighten up a little bit. Uh, but you know, he he cares about me a lot, and so uh, not not a bash on on Kirk. But uh, let me know what you guys think. If, if you thought I was you know too dark, I should have been darker. Uh, yeah, just let me know. And I, I thought John did an awesome job breaking down the history of money. And uh, yeah, let us know what you guys think. But yeah, not your normal, typical Liberty Advisor show, but some bonus content for you guys from Kirk's Money Tree Podcast. And so make sure, and Kirk has tons of great guests on all the time. He is my business partner over here. So uh, yeah, if you guys want to support him and check out his podcast, the Money Tree Podcast, uh, you guys can find it on iTunes and basically everywhere else where you guys can find podcasts. But hope you guys enjoy. Take care. Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Welcome to this week's episode of Money Tree Investing Podcast. My name is Kirk Chisholm and I will be your host today. So today we have another famous guest. We have John Snyson. How are you doing today, John? I'm great. How about you, Kirk? I'm a big fan of John's. He's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the history of money and economics, and I'm really happy to get him on the show today. And John, maybe you can tell the guests a little bit about your background, because I'm sure you can speak much better about yourself than I can. As to anybody, I started this journey back in 2008. When I woke up, I read a book actually called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that totally eviscerated everything that I believed and understood about governments and money. In total, so that really, you know, started the whole trickle into you know wanting to understand money and, and economics because I was like hitting the wall. It's like, wow, you know, this is not what I thought it was. I thought it was, 
So I went into, you know, reading a whole bunch of uh, economics. Well, actually, one of the first ones that really like inspired me was Mike Maloney's Investing in Gold and Silver. A little brief bit about monetary history, you know, what happened throughout history with money and currency and all that. So that really drawn me into that aspect. And of course, I, I love mathematics from a very early age. So really like money and economics, numbers, all this stuff, charts and everything really drove me into, you know, wanting to understand more and more about uh, currency and money. So the, in 2008, I actually met my wife and I moved to Canada in uh, 2009. And in 2009, I actually, when we did the whole paperwork with the government and everything, we did some, missed some check marks. And then, of course, I didn't have the permit to uh, be able to work. So what I had to find is I had to see if I could work with someone that would let me work without a work permit. So I actually started to uh, work in the investment world uh, for a couple of years, selling what was called a syndicated mortgages. So basically selling, you know, what is a product that's basically can be used as mezzanine financing or other financing to pull people's money into and lend that to uh, developers in real estate. So that's what I did for a couple of years, learned a ton about, you know, the real estate markets and what was going on there during that time. And then just uh, during that time as well, you know, I read probably like 100, uh, almost 100 books on different types of monetary history, everything from history of money all the way back to the Greek empire. Great book is called Dark Pools, which talk about the rise of high frequency trading. And, you know, the reasons why we see what we see today going so fast up and down. I really just love understanding technology and money. And of course, uh, throughout the time too, as well, I have been a telecommunication technician. So I understand the technological sides that are more and more merging with the whole market side. And you need to understand the both of them to really understand what they're doing on a grand scale. So yeah, over time, you know, I, I've been on about 800 videos now on different alternative medias. I've been on a whole bunch of mainstream medias here in Canada, and especially during the, the whole Bitcoin uh, initial, like the 2018 bubble, <laughs> everybody was calling to get me on and talk right at the peak of the bubble, of course, you know, because that's, um, you know, the sentiment of uh, the psychology, of course, when it comes to markets. So yeah, I've been, you know, talking about this for many years. I've been speaking at on conferences in three different countries, sorry, four different countries, because I've been in Norway, uh, in Mexico, Canada, and Sweden talking about the history of money and and of course this new digital era that we we're you know heading towards so a lot about that now you know been writing two books and then uh, right now i do a couple of reports here and there that i try to make people understand the facts that is in place because i don't sell anything of course it's only my opinions but i, I use the statistical and historical facts to try to make people understand it better and make better decisions we were on a show a few weeks ago on a YouTube show. We were talking beforehand, and I really want to dig into kind of the history of money because I think a lot of people don't really understand how kind of money came about. And I guess some of the, the examples of when money was used poorly and how it ended up blowing up on them. So I kind of want to go back in time a little bit to talk about how maybe some of the more memorable examples of how money has not worked I think what I really want to do here, just for the listeners' sake here, uh, just so you understand, you know, we're at an interesting economic times right now. No one can deny what's going on and they're printing money all over the place around the world. And it's a big experiment and no one knows how this is going to end. And I think it's helpful to look at history to be instructive for what could happen. 
doesn't mean it will happen, but it gives you an idea of what could happen and it can help you protect yourself if, you know, certain things come to pass that may not be beneficial for people who are holding dollars or yen or whatever the, the currency may be. So, John, what are some of those, your favorite examples in history where money has been used to a more tragic effect? You know, ever since the start that we started to mint currency back in the Greek Empire, you know, the uh, money exchangers and gold, what you call goldsmiths back in the day, they had interesting ways of being able to trade money. They came up with interesting ways and kind of the early, like pre-banking kind of era where you put money into a deposit with a goldsmith, for example. But then, you know, at one point they started to think that, oh, well, you know, what I could do is I could probably create these uh, little certificates of IOUs, basically, which the dollar and all other currencies are in their uh, paper form. They started to make those. And over time, it's like, well, I'm doing okay, but I, I could print more of these, can't I? As long as I don't tell people that I have a lot more of these paper IOUs than actually physical gold in the storage, it's fine to just keep on doing that. And that comes to a point where, you know, there's too many of these IOUs in circulation so that people come in and want their gold back, but then they found out that there's no gold. Very similar to the modern era, you know, deposits, you know, if you have a bank run with people wanting cash out of the bank, the bank doesn't have that much cash as it actually has physical deposits on demand. So the early ways, you know, it started with goldsmiths and so on. But then, of course, uh, the governments like Greek government and the through the Roman era, you know, they actually used their currencies. They started with gold and silver minted currencies. And then, of course, over time, as they wanted to expand their empires and grow bigger, you know, it sounds kind of familiar to the United States where they expand their, their realm around the world with all their military bases and all this. You need money to do that, right? And if you just have a set supply of money, you can't just create that out of thin air. So what they did in the early days before paper money and, now of course, the digital era, they started to debase the currency. So they took out, they had lesser and lesser content, for example, of silver. Uh, for example, at one silver denarius back in the year 212 had 90 something percent silver. But then, uh, as you know, time went on, I think it was about 80 years later, that same silver denarius, you know, had a content of maybe like five or 10 percent or even less. And they went to just copper currency at one point in, in the Roman Empire. So it's very interesting how. You know, they do that, but they did that in order to be able to, you know, spend more as a government and be able to expand, you know, their control around the world as an empire. So that was, of course, the Roman Empire. We know all like the decline of empires always happen and, and they always rise with the creation of a currency or money. So the first actual paper currency that was created in the world, they started early in China and over there with their skin money in the year 700s or so. But then they actually merged and they created the first paper printed like with actual, you know, uh, being pressed on currency. And this was way before, you know, uh, Goethe was around to actually print anything. They actually printed with their own uh, ink. What they did is it was the Sung Dynasty back in 1024. They created the first paper currency ever existed in history. And what they did with that currency initially, you know, it's interesting to the similarities to the U.S. dollar. Back in the day, they didn't usually have gold or silver backing because they didn't have that much, especially in China, they didn't have that much of uh, the currency. They more had copper. So what they did is they backed it against a certain amount, a percentage, you know, a percentage of coinage that they had, which was copper coinage. You know, backing that, that went well for a while. But then after, you know, in like 20 or so, uh, 30 years, they started actually you know, getting involved in lending that money out to uh, everyone and 
And you had a, almost like an economic miracle that happened where people, you know, felt a lot wealthier. They started to really boom the economy. But at one point, they, they had to, you know, go into more and more of this because they started to charge interest on that. And so what happens throughout history when you charge interest, you get to a point where when you create money and uh, you actually have the debt that you create, but then you have the interest. If you pay off all the debt, there's still interest left. And so that's the whole end of that system. But more and more people were, you know, getting and feeling more wealthier, getting into more debt, and they printed more of these. But at one point, that purchasing power, you know, really started to uh, show in the, the markets and the economy where, you know, they weren't able to get, you know, near as much anymore for the paycheck. I don't know exactly like what they, you know, how they got paid. They still labor and so on, but not on the scale that we have today. But they got paid and uh, as the goods, you know, the, the currency that they use to save up and then buy things got less and less valuable over time, people would be like, well, you know, what are we going to do here? You know, the, our, the currency that you issue, uh, you know, the emperor that in the Song Dynasty, why are you know, continuing this? And actually, at one point, they had to go away from the backing of coinage that was 30% and others, just pure fiat, which basically means it's backed by nothing. And it's, uh, you know, of course, it was law throughout that time. So it actually said on the bill that they had, you know, if you do, uh, you know, counterfeit this bill, you will get your head chopped off. So it's a little bit worse than it is today. You know, today you get put in prison. <laughs> but so that, that was, uh, you know, the first actual bill. And then of course, as they raised, they became a very, you know, huge dynasty. But then the Mongols, you know, saw uh, over time that they became weaker because they their currency started to, you know, really weaken in, in purchasing power. And that's when, you know, the Mongols attacked and, and they had to just, in order to protect themselves, they had to, you know, print mass amounts of currency in order to buy military equipment and so on. And that's what really created the real hyperinflation that just, you know, devastated the currency. And it lasted till 1127. So it lasted about 103 years. And after that, you know, they had several other empires. Uh, you had, of course, the next one is the Qin government. Same thing happened. You know, that one was actually less than, that goes 80 years that it lasted, the currency. Then the next one was, this was another one uh, that was there. It was a, a Southern Song dynasty. And that one lasted about you know, 150 years. So they were a little bit more you know, pertinent with the amount that they could print the money. And then, of course, after that, you had the Yuan dynasty, which really were terrible at managing their money. Their currency that they created lasted from 1227, but then it actually failed by, was, let's see here, it's um, of around 1280. So it actually failed. It just like completely lost value, like vertically. And it was a revaluation basically of a currency. And, and there's so many examples of that in modern history, like Argentina has done that, you know, eight times throughout the last hundred years, where they basically overnight, the currency is worth way less now. So it sounds like, I mean, a lot of these currencies, and there's countless examples in history, but it sounds like these currencies don't really last much longer than 100 years, and then there's this debasement that happens. Is that, does that sound about right? That's actually a very fair uh, observation, and it actually is very similar to every currency around the world. Like, whenever there's an empire, you know, they usually last between, you know, anywhere from 100 to 150, maybe 200 years at the top end. But that's usually the lifespan, and they live and die mostly with their, the value of their currency or money, which is so very interesting. Just for, because I think it's helpful for the listeners to understand, it's, they're probably thinking, what does this mean for me? So I think the question I would ask you is, that's great. So it lasts 100 to, let's say, 200 years as the max. So what happens if a currency starts to go into decline? What are indications that this is happening? And you know, what are things that people should watch out for? 
One of the number one things that happen is you hit what I call peak debt, where basically there's no nobody else that can take on more debt. You know, the economy is strained, you know, the amount of paychecks and everything that we have doesn't account to, you know, as much debt that we have. So we basically go into default mode and you have these cycles so many times, you know, especially with the creation of the Federal Reserve, a central bank, you have these cycles almost every seven years, which is called the business cycle. And and that's how, you know, everybody overextend themselves on debt to a point where they actually can't service that debt anymore. And then they default on that debt. That is, you know, the, the turning point in uh, the most recent, you know, 400, 500 years of history where you actually get to the point where you just have too much debt, oversaturated with debt, and you just can't pay it anymore. And that's when you, you really start to see a deflationary decline. But then, of course, the, the central entities usually panic, and then they just start printing currency more and more in order to be able to make the currency less and less worth so you could keep on borrowing more money over time. And, and that's the whole scheme. Like That's what, why you have you know the, the drive for the need for inflation always, you know, you have an inflation target of 2% with uh, the Federal Reserve, they always need to grow the monetary supply. Because if you go in default, you got to remember, when you print currency out of thin air, like the central bank does, uh, together with the US Treasury going into deficit spending, you actually uh, create the debt. But on top of that, there's actually an interest rate, you know, on all the bonds that gets created. And that that is where the problem is, because you always have to increase the monetary supply. Let's start at the basics. So $100, you know, you started with uh, borrowing you $100, you got to pay me back, let's say one or two or 5% on that on interest that I want, but there's only $100 in existence. So what do you got to do then? Well, you got to come back to me and say like, John, can you print me another, you know, uh, $5 or so because I need to pay off the interest, uh, whatever. So it's very similar to Ponzi scheme where you have to continuously increase the monetary supply through debt creation. Uh, and that's why you see the, the Federal Reserve, you know, have to buy up the assets. They can't just let them default right now. And I think so, that's the biggest warning. Let's look at this in a few scenarios, right? So all throughout history, the result has been the same. The government's get into trouble and then they just start printing wildly to try to bail themselves out. What would happen if they didn't do that? What are they afraid of? They're afraid of what's called deflationary pressure, where actually the currency was strengthened in value and everything becomes less and less costly. But the problem is that if you have debt, you know, if you set with debt, you racked up all this debt and you get that deflationary pressure as your income goes down over time because currency gets more and more valuable, basically that debt that you have is never going to be able to be paid back because of that deflationary state. And that creates, you know, what you see uh, as defaults now and everything into the economy. Now I would argue that, well, if things are getting cheaper, that's probably a good thing. I would love to see that. Right. But, and, yeah, that's not what they believe in. Right. But then defaults, I mean, isn't that a natural course of economics where, you know, well, this current, yeah, current monetary cycle, you have to have defaults because you always, you over exaggerate on that. And then you have a natural collapse of whoever has too much debt. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're, they're really afraid of that, but other than defaulting on debts, like what would, let's look at Japan. They're probably right now the best example of deflation going on in the world. You know, unless you have a better example, that's a pretty notable one. It's been there for decades. People look at Japan. Japan seems to be fine. You know, their economy seems to be okay. They've been in deflation for what, 30, 40 years. What's so bad about that? Their yen is actually, uh, for example, it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of yen right now because they printed a lot of currency. And of course, 
the central bank has been in there, you know, buying up every single asset that they can. They hold stocks, they hold bonds, they hold ETFs. They just had to do that because you had a natural saturation. But also another important cycle that I didn't mention, you know, is the demographic cycle of people aging. Because that's a natural deflationary pressure as, you know, people get older, they, uh, you know, sell their assets because they retire and and they need to be able to get those off the books. But the problem is going to be when there's not enough young people to actually buy those assets, then the central bank stepped in, right? And they had to buy everything, but they never, like the economy and, and their stock market has never really gone above or the peak in the 80s. Uh, you had just like a stagnation in the economy, as they call it. But, you know, people are still fine. But of course, for major reasons, I don't want to live in Japan. But, you know, it's not bad to have that. But the problem is you still like have that balance between, you know, the paychecks of the people and the inflation that you create by, you know, issuing because some of that money that they buy, you know, they buy all these stocks and then they give the banks fresh currency that they put in as a deposit. So money eventually trickles into the economy and create, you know, inflation for the people locally. And and having a cheap currency, you know, is the best of things because then everybody wants to buy from you. But you know, for the people themselves, you know, and savings in in Japan is not very well. Like try to save bonds that are negative yielding. Of course, you know, when you look at the uh, ownerships of uh, other things as well, you know, real estate and everything is down. So compared to the rest of the world, because the rest of the world is we're in the same boat here. You know, Japan is not doing that well. Even though that people can you know, get along and, and, and survive there, they're still not doing fantastic. And it kind of brings up the topic of debt too, right? Because they've got, what, 425, 450% of GDP is in debt, something like yeah. that, some crazy. Yeah, number. around there, like all debt, when you, when you talk about all debt, they bought, you know, 250. They have like 250% debt to GDP, just like the government debt to GDP, of course. So yeah, you have like the monetization of debt that these central banks create. And I just feel like it's unsustainable to just do that. And you basically are destroying savers that will be able to, in the old days, if you have like a stable system that you just have a set currency amount, you'd be able to save up over time and then buy a house cash. Like over time, as this progresses, then there's so much currency in supply uh, and people are, you know, salaries are not increasing with the amount of real inflation. That's the reason why you have people having to buy, you know, they're, uh, they have like now 30, 40 year uh, mortgages. They have like car loans, you know, goes from being cash payment over to, you know, two years, three years, five years, eight years, 10 years now, right? So you're seeing an unsustainable rise as you could keep on monetizing and buy this debt forever and never go bankrupt as a government, but you will destroy the purchasing power for the people. And at a certain point, the people could you know, say that, I'm not going to use this currency anymore. I just want something else. And that's when they usually fail and go into usually a hyperinflation of some sorts where you, the government just got to print excessive amounts of electronic money to pay off all the debt that exists and, and so on. And, and people don't use it. We actually had an electronic central bank currency that was created in Ecuador in 2014. Nobody used it, and so it failed in 2018. That had to shut down the electronic currency project there. They, they actually tried to do what we're seeing the Federal Reserve is talking about, and, and a lot of Canadian banks or central banks and other places around the world are talking about. And that's kind of the weapon that they need to put in is they need to go into a cashless system in order to protect the banking system itself here and be able to manipulate it. 
And that brings up an interesting concept of where digital currency, and we see Bitcoin and all these other ones, and the government seem to be against all that, yet they're, from what I hear, they're building their own. So A, why would they do that? And B, what are the problems? What is that going to solve for these governments? There's a book out there called The Curse of Cash by Ken Rogoff, and he lays out every single issue that has been talked about. Some of them are, of course, in that book is the number one thing that he is wanting to happen with the digital currency is that the governments around the world would have way easier access to you as everything is digital and they have everything on a ledger somewhere that they could control and see what you used, what you got paid and all this stuff. So they could easily you know, tax you. That's the number one thing. And then the second uh, and most important thing is to prevent bank runs. Throughout history, there's been you know hundreds upon hundreds, probably thousands of bank runs. As we said in the beginning, you know, you had deposits at the bank. When you deposit money into the bank, it's not yours anymore. You're borrowing it to the, uh, you're lending that to the bank, right? So what happens then is that eventually, you know, that today's banks, you know, they're not like the savings and loan banks back in the day where you go and you know borrow the money to people to buy mortgages and and so on. Now they're in the stock market, you know, they're investing in derivatives and they're making crazy bets. And so on with, you know, your deposit money that you deposited. And then, of course, they have limited amount of physical cash. So the physical cash that's, you know, in place, probably like in most banks, you're looking at maybe one to three percent max, probably even lower, mostly, uh, and also in, in credit unions. So what they're afraid of is that people physically will go to the ATMs and take out, you know, X amount of money. And let's say that five percent of people took out their deposits. The bank is done almost. Uh, so th- there's a huge risk there, of course, and that's one of the major reasons why they want to go into a digital era. And then the, the other thing that he talked about was, of course, you know, it's germs all over uh, these bills that, you know, can flow in between people. So it's a huge hazard. You know, that's why a lot of people, a lot of businesses here in Canada is not accepting physical cash anymore. Uh, several other things, too. But th- the most important things is that and it's actually like they're saying it's, oh, it's to stop terrorists and evil money launder and traffickers and all this stuff. But meanwhile, it's mostly for, you know, them being able to collect taxes better and then to protect the banks from, you know, insolvency. This is the part I never understood. So you have a digital currency. Why do we need a bank if we're not depositing monies there? I mean, I know that they're afraid of this. And yet at the same time, they're trying to come up with their own digital currency. So why do you need a bank if you have a digital currency? No, exactly. hundred percent. I totally... 2000% 2000% agree with that because now you basically uh, can hold a wallet on your own computer and everywhere, right? And, and of course, with uh, the cryptocurrencies that are out there, you know, you could freely transfer person to person without the need of a third party as the banks are, right? So, but they don't want to give away that power. They want that centralized currency that you still have to have deposit somewhere where they can control it. So they're very afraid of the people actually going out and physically, you know, we don't need you anymore. So I could send currency to you. I could send money to my family, uh, you know, in in Norway very easily without, you know, massive wire transfer costs and, and, and so on, because that, that really cuts up the middleman of the whole system with this new decentralized and distributed systems that, you know, are coming out and not the digital currencies that the central banks want, because they are totally centralized and controlled by them. I mean, digital currency aside, because I think from what I've been hearing, there are a few countries out there, I believe India and China, who would have a digital currency ready to go, assuming that they wanted to do that. You know, not every country has that. So that makes that process interesting. 
But you look at countries like Venezuela, which is, I guess, our most recent victim of poorly managed currencies. What went wrong there? And you hear stories about it's a socialist country and that there's no food on the shelves and really having a tough time there. I mean, people are starving. And what made that go wrong? Like, what did they do from a monetary perspective that kind of doomed them for this challenging situation? Exactly what happened was that they were dependent on oil royalties. They actually ran the budget on the that the price of oil would be around $130. And so when the oil price dropped down to like initially, this was back in it was I, I forgot the exact year, but I think it was 20, uh, 2015. 15, yeah. Sorry, 15 yeah. in December and then in, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when that happened, you know, all, all your income dwindles up and disappears. So what did they have to do because they didn't, you know, have a proper system where they actually could, you know, tax people more or anything to actually, you know, raise their the government income, they had to physically go out there and print currency into existence in order to keep up the shortfall and and you know be able to centrally plan and pay people everywhere in the government and also pay uh, people in the economy. So they had to do that because when uh, like when you're dependent, heavily dependent on uh, royalties to actually fund your government, that is a very dangerous position to be when you're dependent on that, on a physical commodity that could, you know, with supply and demand over time, and especially now during the coronavirus, just plummets and go to negative even. I actually wrote about that in 2015, warning about that. This will create a hyperinflation in, in Venezuela because how are they going to pay for things with the only thing that they're dependent on for income is, you know, oil prices f- to fund their government spending. It's certainly a great example of that. What about, you know, a lot of people are worried about the amount of debt that's being created for the coronavirus crisis from 2008. I mean, there's massive amounts of debt being created. So why doesn't the U.S. go into hyperinflation? Because we're just basically printing money like they are. (laughs) It's a little bit different with the United States. With Venezuela, too, another thing was that they had a lot of denominated debt in other currencies. As this happened, you know, they had issues with, you know, their debt basically becoming extremely unsustainable, as I said, with their currency losing value, they couldn't pay back the debt whatsoever. So that was the number one thing with the United States that makes them a little bit better is that they actually, you know, physically print everything and have it in dollar denominated debt. So they could keep on with that whole thing and and get into mass amounts of debt to, you know, their thieves. But what is happening over time, and and this is a chart that people should go and look up. They could go to the St. Louis Fed for this. It's called fred.stlouis.org and it's slash series slash M2V. That is the monetary velocity. So how, you know, much money actually circulates through the economy. A healthy economy, you know, you have money changing hands from, you know, as it gets created into debt, you know, moves around in the economy really, really well. But what has ended up happening with the United States creating all this debt and then buying, you know, the assets, what they're doing is they actually, the banks are, you know, as they're buying the assets, they're giving the banks fresh money, but that is put as on deposits at the Federal Reserve for X amount of interest that they can, you know, give them. And, and it doesn't, you know, move in into the economy whatsoever. A second thing is that also the United States has shipped a lot of their debt overseas. Mass amounts of, you know, their currency is overseas with, you know, six, seven trillion something in bonds that are, that are being held, you know, by China, by Japan, and by a whole major array of other Western countries. The thing is, if, if you actually took that money and moved that money right into the economy where people are spending it and using it, you know, you would have an hyperinflation on your hands very, very fast. 
the thing is, though, it, it has moved in. But you did see, though, high, not hyperinflation, but very high inflation, not so much in real estate, but in the stock markets. You know, stock markets raised like crazy because they used debt to buy uh, uh, stocks and they used uh, debt to, you know, go on margins and increase the amount of currency that are chasing the same assets in in the stock market. So that's why you saw, you know, massive inflation. I, I call it inflation. It's not, you know, percentage rise of stocks. It doesn't really change. Like if you actually took a stock and looked at it, you know, if you just looked at it against a fixed value object or something, the stock wouldn't probably change that crazy much. Of course, there's growth in companies and companies get bigger and take over things. But, you know, over time, it's it's not as great of a gain really against the paper currency that you're measuring it against. Because it's like basically you're trying to use a measurement like uh, a measuring stick and <laughs> and it changes every day. So you can't build, how can you build a house with, you know, measuring with a, a changing target measurement all the time? That doesn't make sense. And that's what's, you know, happening with, with currencies that it constantly changes, but you haven't seen the amount of inflation because of, you know, the two major things that, you know, it doesn't trickle into the real economy. Let's talk about bailouts for a minute. Cause we just had this huge crisis and fed is, well, let's just say there's lots of money. I mean, the government programs and the, you know, the feds in there buying all this debt and supporting the economy. What are all these bailouts, which are, you know, make 2008 look like a, you know, like a, a small party. What is this going to do to our economy at this point? You're basically making people and, and businesses and everybody dependent on bailouts because, first of all, you know, nobody is able to work. And uh, like the, the government think that, you know, they're going to, you know, keep on giving you money. I, I think that this is the start of what you call universal basic income, probably in a lot of countries, because they got to keep those people that lost all those jobs now uh, that are never going to come back. A lot of businesses are shuttering. You know, in China, I just watched uh, Wuhan that reopened their economy. They're saying that at least 20 to 30% of all the restaurants that were there, they're gone forever. And and a lot of businesses as well, because first of all, people are not going to just move into the economy and, you know, start spending a whole bunch of money. They're going to actually, you know, um, spend less as, you know, they're getting some of the stimulus. A lot of the stimulus are sometimes loans. If those loans, and of course, with the banks, you know, that you currently keep you know getting more interest on that debt as you defer payments here in Canada for example so you still have you know the rise of debt levels are still increasing if you look at the what's called m2 and m3 monetary supply it's all the currency that exists in in a country you actually see that that is slightly increasing all the time as the stimulus packages are you know uh, getting shoved out there but the problem is you could keep on, you know, stimulating uh, the economy and, and, you know, bailing out everybody left, right and center. The problem is you're creating zombies. And that's what happened with, you know, a lot of corporations in the United States. There was $10 trillion at the peak of corporate debt that was made available. And of course, a lot of, uh, you know, the share stock prices was used by, you know, getting into debt and then buying back your own shares. But all that debt has become uh, and created uh, people that are not able to pay that uh, money back. So, for example, you know, uh, governments and and corporations, I think it was like somewhere around 15%. That's not completely accurate number, but that were zombie companies. So basically, a zombie corporation is or a company or a government is somebody that only pays interest on the debt. They can't pay down the principal uh, on the debt. So they just manage by servicing the, you know, the interest payments on the debt and and then I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the economy where 
you could keep on, you know, bailing out people left, right, and center. But what you're doing is you're really uh, distorting uh, real market e- economics where you, you shove money in and give people a currency that probably shouldn't have had it because they mismanaged their company. And, and they would have been, you know, uh, as we said, these debt cycles, these business cycles and everything else would sorted itself out. Instead, you know, they're not willing because they need to keep inflation rising. They need to bail them out in order to, you know, constantly increase the supply of, of currency because they're, you know, deathly afraid. It was uh, Ben Bernanke said uh, said it in a 2002 speech. Deflationary pressures comes in. We could take uh, comfort in that the pressure of the printing presses always win over deflation. So that's what <laughs> you're going to see. Uh, basically, you know, they're going to keep on printing tons of currency, but at one point, you could print all this currency, but what you're doing is you're putting a wedge between the rich and poor side, and you're devastating the middle class because the middle class either becomes richer, you know, and, and ends up on the other side, or they become way poorer. A lot of them, unfortunately, are becoming way poorer because they can't sustain their debt levels that they have. So you're creating a huge diversion. The more and more currency that you print because uh, stock markets and everything and, uh, and other assets are going up that they're propping those up. And that's very few people like the everyday person that's in those markets, right? So what you're creating is you're creating a huge diversion of more income inequality by this currency printing over time. And then you get riots like you have in France. France is just terrible, you know, with with their currency. There's people there that are, are protesting out in the street because they can't pay for getting food. Number two reason, there was a tax increase. It was a basically a carbon tax that they tried to implement. And that was the straw. You know, they didn't have enough currency. And you're getting the pressure from the inflation, but also from the taxes. Who's going to pay for all of this, right? At the end, they're going to have to raise taxes or they're just going to believe that they can print it to oblivion? I don't think so. Like you can only go to a certain point where that breaking point is, where people are starving in the streets because you have distorted where you have stagnant or even slowing down wages, but you have the increase of prices and everything is going up and people are just falling further and further behind most of people, right? That's a great point because a lot of what's going on is creating some of these divisions between the rich and poor and destroying the middle class. And people think it's it's politics, but it's not. It, it's really money and what's going on with the money and, and debt that's being created in society. We got to wrap it up here in the interest of time, but I, I really enjoyed having you on, John. Any kind of final thoughts? And then where can people find more about you and your books? And this has really been a great chance to chat with you. Final thoughts is you need to, like in these days, you need somebody that understands, if you don't understand money yourself or or all the stuff that we're talking about, you need somebody to help protect you from that risk. And of course, guys like you and and, uh, Tim and others that I know that are actual advisors that are not, we're not talking about the general advisor, but people that actually study history and study cycles, study real economics, they understand and, and can position themselves to, you know, uh, put people at a better place. And what I try to do as well is I try to, you know, come out with my ideas and my understanding of, of history and put forth data that, you know, for like the real current time and try to make sense out of it all for people. Like it's just basically me, myself, trying to make sense of it myself. But then I also, you know, are able to put the, my information out because all the work that I put into that to the regular everyday person so they actually could be able to get a better understanding and become financially literate. You know, it's the biggest crime of the century not teaching understanding money or economics in schools. It's just a fraud in my point of view. So 
I think it's very important that we like to take from all of this is to, you know, you need to educate yourself and just understand at least basics so you can see and see through all of these, you know, things that are happening. Because if you don't see through it, you're going to become a, a huge victim of them if you get stuck in, you know, your, like what you hear at mainstream media, because they're just pumping up whatever the corporations and the financial industry wants you to put your money into so they could exit out of those investments. Yeah, I believe that's where, you know, it all ends that you need to take care and and understand money and economics. And of course, that brings me back to what I do. You could find my work at theeconomictruth.org. I have a couple of reports. I actually had a report on the uh, real estate bubble in Australia there, which is really great. I actually give people an understanding of what actually currently is happening in Australia because you see bank banks are starting to struggle and the real estate market are crashing there. Also, I have, of course, my book, Canada, the greatest economy in the world, question mark. And the question mark was the debt levels that uh, the private sector has here in Canada. And that is the most important part is we don't care about the government. You know, it's like Krugman, he says like, oh, debt is money we owe to ourselves. That's if you are the government and, you know, print your own currency. That's not if I'm Joe Blow, you know, owning money for a car or a house. (laughs) I don't owe that to myself. That's I, I, kind of warning about that. And of course, uh, my last book is The End of Freedom, How Our Monetary System Enslaves Us, where I talk about monetary history, you know, ever since, you know, the Greek, uh, back to the Greek empires all the way to modern day era. And then l- lately, but lastly, I have one great last report uh, called Global Risk Report 2020, where I go into and look at uh, all kinds of markets, everything from cryptocurrency to real estate, to bonds, to stocks and everything, and try to make sense out of it all and and look at some of the potential risks that are there. And one of them, of course, I was warning about derivatives like CLOs that would implode. And now you're seeing the bailouts basically buying in Canada and other places are buying the collateralized loan obligations, which are basically the same thing as the CDOs and the mortgage-backed securities back in 2008, just for corporations. So yeah, you could find everything. And I, I put out a newsletter a couple of times uh, a year, you know, to people as well. So people could sign up there and get all the information there. And one last thing, I have something called bankrun.org, which is basically a site where I try every week or so, go out there and look for uh, news and everything happening around the world about risks in uh, banks around the world. That was a great interview with John. I really enjoyed that. I have to say, I love the intellectual stimulation from talking to people like him. You may listen to that interview and say, yeah, but how does that actually apply to me? For me, I could just think about these things all day long because they're just fascinating because no one knows the future. So we try to think about what those scenarios and outcomes could be. But I think it's important to understand history. So as I say, you're not doomed to repeat it. So getting into the panel portion of our show, we have our returning panelist, Barbara Friedberg. How are you doing today, Barb? I'm doing good, Kirk. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you on and really interested to hear what you have to say about this episode. I know we had some good pre-show chatter here. We also have a another returning panelist, Megan Gorman. How you doing, Hi, Megan? Kirk. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. We also have another returning panelist, Tim Pachote. How are you doing today, Tim? As good as you can be doing for um, spending the last two weeks moving in 100-degree weather. Glad to be done with that. I'm glad they allowed you to move. <laughs> My state, they'd probably arrest you if you left your house. Well, we have guns here in this state and you guys don't. So, <laughs> Yes, yes. Two very different political uh, sides in that, <laughs> in that argument. So let's get to it. So this was a really interesting conversation with John. 
I know, Tim, you actually know John very well, which is one of the reasons we were able to get John on the show. I know he's in high demand right now. What are your thoughts based on the conversation we had with John in terms of the history of money? I know you have some pretty good thinking around that. John's one of my best friends. I talk with him almost every day, a brilliant mind. But when it comes to the history of money, I think his people tend to forget history. I mean, even 12 years post uh, the financial crisis, I mean, obviously now you know people are have financial crisis on their mind, but four months ago, they didn't. And a lot of the issues that had crept up in 2008 were creeping up again. John and I actually were doing some podcasts actually in February, kind of before a lot of this all kicked off, talking about things like collateralized loan obligations and even like tinkering around on the Bank of International Settlements website where they were having emergency meetings on CLOs or collateralized loan obligations. And this is right as everything is starting to really kick off. By having somebody like John who's able to really parse through the data, I mean, he's just an economic nerd. I mean, he's not reading other articles of what people are saying on the economy. He's actually going through and doing the research himself. And, and I think a lot of people are lulled into, oh, well, it's different this time, or we've got modern monetary theory, or Barbara loved this one, Paul Krugman said this. And so and so when we're in this type of environment, you know, it's easy for people to, oh, well, it's different this time because we have the Federal Reserve and they're going to print as much money as, as possible. And they're actually begging Congress to actually spend even more money that they don't already have. But all of this is going to have long-term consequences, whether or not people sitting up their ivory towers in Washington, D.C. think so or not. And, and really, I think at this point, you know, without kind of giving away the, the ending over here, is I think we're getting a lot of rope in terms of debt. And people are complacent now, but eventually, you know, all that rope that they're giving us is metaphorically going to hang ourselves. And I think we're in sort of this checkmated position right now that we can never get out of. The, In my opinion, the Fed's balance sheet is never going down. Okay, great. It went from, I don't know, like 4.3 trillion down to maybe 3.7 trillion-ish. They at the Federal Reserve thought it was going to be going down to zero. And I said this on stage actually right before everything kicked off, like February 11th, where I said, hey, listen, this is like a 600-pound person that lost five pounds. And then they're trying to take a victory lap that they lost five pounds, but they still weigh 595 pounds. And guess what? That 595 pound person is on its way to a thousand pounds. This was something I said on stage 10 days before the market high. So it's not like I was Monday morning quarterbacking this. And the response by the Fed has been even crazier than what I would have even deemed appropriate. But all of this, you can't solve a debt crisis by getting yourselves more into debt. And so there's certain fundamental issues that I know John touches on, that myself touches on. I'd like to see what the other panelists have to, you know, I probably gave a lot to chew on with some of that stuff. So I'll shut up now. It's a good perspective. And I definitely share a lot of uh, your and John's views. And I think it's, for me, a lot of this is really interesting. Because none of us know the future, but we can look at history and we we can take lessons from that as to how this might actually play out. But Barb, you're I won't speak for you, but you may be on a different side of this. What are kind of your thoughts in this whole what's going on and how this kind of relates to the history of money? Well, as Tim was talking, I was thinking about one overriding theme, which is we could get really dark here because no one knows the future people can project all different sorts of things. So number one, one of the things I found really interesting about what John said was, most currencies only lasted about 100 years. 
That brings up the point. So is the currency, our current currency going to go away? Well, no, I don't think so. I think that was historically, and I don't think that fact is going to come to play. There are some factors that probably will happen. But again, we have prevailed over very, very, very dark scenarios in the past economic scenarios. Although we're in for a tough time, I don't want this to be about the sky is falling and we're all going to be doomed. Let me just go from there. I think in the short run, what we're seeing is there are large swaths of the economy that are really troubled. The restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, the government is printing a ton of money. And so what that means for the average American is, and inflation is very, very high. It's probably roughly in the range of 20%, although we don't know exactly how much. And there are a lot of people out there that are really, really struggling. If I can shortly kind of pull it all together and say, it's likely that we're going to have some inflation in the future, which means our dollars, prices are going to go up. And we've seen it at the grocery. It's already reported. It's up 20% because demand is increasing. So that's what's going on. It's also likely that in the future, people will come back to work. Our money supply is not going anywhere, but what Tim said is accurate. The country's going to have a lot of debt. And I love the analogy of the 400-pound guy losing 105 pounds and going, woohoo. In the future, it's going to imply that taxes are going to go up and we are going to have some inflation. So we've got to kind of figure out not only what to do now, but how are we going to, as a population, how are we going to handle the present and the future? So I'll just leave it open for discussion for the other panelists. Or why should taxes have to go up? Or why do we even have to pay taxes if what we collect like $4 trillion a year in taxes and now we just had probably two separate $3 trillion bailouts. Now the money is backed by debt. And so in order to get money into the economy, you have to get debt into the economy. And since debt has interest on it and the money doesn't, you're always going to have more debt than you have money because, and our money is not really even money, it's currency, but that's a whole nother subject. But there is no amount of taxes to pay off the debt. I mean, it's basically a high tech slavery system. And so until you understand that, you're just dancing around the edges of trying to pretend everything is normal. You could literally take all of the money in the world and you cannot pay off the debt. Basically, we're in this high tech feudalistic system of debt. And we've also made comments about most currencies around 100 years. Well, John made that comment. Well, this current currency has really only been around since Bretton Woods, 1941. So I wouldn't get too cocky because the United States has had several different currencies. There's been, this is at least the third version of the Federal Reserve. The first version ended in 1812. You may have remembered the British actually openly owned it. And that's why they came down and burned down the White House. The second one, Andrew Jackson got rid of in about, I don't know, no year, like 1837. And then we had, I don't want to keep dominating too much on that. When you say make a comment like taxes go up, I mean, it just highlights that you don't understand the full extent of the problem because you could literally raise the taxes to 100% than everybody and you cannot pay off the debt, which then brings a moral question is if you can't pay it off and we have a private central bank that just 
issues money out of thin air that they never had to begin with. I mean, some of the founders of this country even said, if, if you ever allow a private central bank to issue the currency and credit of this nation, first by inflation, then by deflation, we're going to end up homeless on the continent our forefathers conquered. And this is all without notes too. And I literally just woke up. Getting into this, there's no way to pay off this debt even if assuming everybody still worked as much as they would before if they had everything going to taxes. And so eventually something is going to have to give and to try to assume that there's always going to be a demand for dollars. I, I was on record saying that the dollar would get stronger during the initial phases of a crisis, but eventually that strength will lead to weakness. Because if you're in some other crap currency and all of a sudden you borrowed in dollars, which most countries do, and now your currency is down 40%, well, then now you got to pay 40% more and you're already going through problems yourself in other currencies. This is a completely unsustainable situation. You know, and some people will be fine. So, you know, not financial advice, but you know, guys like John and myself, proponents of Bitcoin and gold and silver and Almost every other currency, gold is hitting all-time highs. Bitcoin is probably up over 100% year-to-date. And so that there's our people, a very small minority of us, who are going to be okay throughout this. And I like to believe that, not financial advice again. But everyone that thinks that, oh, it's going to be, we've been doing great the past 80 years running this monetary scheme. Well, nothing lasts forever. And we're at the end game of this because it took the country from 1913 when the Fed was created to 2008 to get $800 billion in reserves at the Fed. If you can even call it reserves, I guess it'd be their balance sheet. And now that's something like we're doing that on like a Tuesday. Just last week, I think the Fed increased their balance sheet by almost a quarter of a trillion dollars. I mean, what? We're on a on pace to increase the Fed's balance sheets by a trillion dollars a month, which it took the country almost 100 years to get the first trillion. And now it's taking the country like every month. And so we're hooked onto this cheap debt, this cheap, I hate to call it stimulus, but now you know I saw something today where 82% of Americans favor having more stimulus. And so we've hooked people on this. We can't just take them off of it. And it's all this fake, phony economy that you know eventually is going to come to an end. It doesn't mean the world's going to end. Most Americans don't have any money anyways, so they don't really have anything to lose. But there's a lot of people that are quote unquote, think they're rich, that probably are not going to be rich in the future. And I'll leave it there. I want to let Barb respond, and then I want to you know, let Megan respond too. Barb, any kind of, I know he made some comments to yours you may want to clarify. No, I think Tim paints a, a very dire picture, and theoretically that could happen. There is no guarantee that his vision of the future will come to pass. And I also think that taxes are going to go up. That is a, a pretty strong likelihood, not that they're going to offset the debt payment, because as Tim mentioned, the debt payment is unsustainable. But because a government can continue to print money and print money and print money, they're not like you and I, where we have to ultimately pay it back. So I'll stop here and just say, we don't know for sure what's going to happen in the future. We do know that this current stimulus is causing a lot more debt within our government and that ultimately what is likely to happen is there will be inflation and taxes will go up. But again, nobody knows for sure. So I'll let Megan have a chance to chime in as well. And the only way we're going to know the future with certainty is when it comes. I appreciate Tim's point of view. I do agree, Barb. It's a bit dark. Going back to the interview, I think just looking at this big picture, John talking about the history of finance and the history of money is really important 
primarily because so much in crisis, when there is uncertainty in crisis, we often have to go back and look at history. Having him on right now is just perfect timing for everything we're going through because it goes back to that Mark Twain quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And so I do think for listeners trying to understand why we would want someone who focuses on financial history on, I think it's because whenever we have been in a crisis economically, whether it's in recent years, the dot-com, the 9-11 crisis, the 2008 crisis, and today, when you talk to investment people or you talk to finance people, history is immediately where they go to and try to understand what has happened in order to give people context of what to do going forward. Despite the fact that there is a lot of dire issues out there, we need to use history as a guidance to go forward and to have optimism about our finances. That's important because we need to think about what we should be doing as dark times occur to come out of those times in a much better place. And when you actually study the personal finance and individuals and how they succeed in personal finance, When you look at financial resiliency, which is the state that we all want to be in in our personal finances, what we typically find is that most people who are resilient have had challenging times. It has not been perfect sailing. When you think about this in terms of the history of money, we're going to consistently have these times of crises. It's important to make sure that your own personal finances are structured as such to be resilient so that If inflation comes, as Barb pointed out, you are prepared for it. If there's a tax increase, which I believe will be coming as well, we are prepared for it. It's learning those skills. So I know I've gone on a different tangent than both of you, but I think it's just important to make this more user-friendly for living our own personal financial lives. And I love your kind of wrapping it back, Megan, because that's the concept of financial resilience is really important. It's something we talk about a lot. What we're talking about here is understanding history. Like you said, it may not repeat, but it rhymes. No one here has been through a crisis like this. Similar things, but not like what we're doing now where people are shuttered in their homes. So people are looking for examples and there just aren't any good ones to pull from to see how to react. I will say that in contrast to what Barb and Tim were talking about, frequently people tend to think in extremes. The market sells off and they think, oh, it's going to go to zero. Or the market is going straight up and they think it's going to go up forever. And that's a cognitive bias that people have where they just think things are going to continue in a certain way. Or we tend to think in extremes as if the worst case scenario is going to happen, as if this dark scenario is going to happen or this this scenario where everything is going to be fine, like in the dot-com bubble where, hey, none of these companies are making money, but who cares? Stock prices are going to keep rising, right? Like we tend to think in extremes when we're looking at investing. And if you really kind of bring it back to reality, the extreme scenarios rarely, if ever, happen. It's not to say that what Tim and Barbara are saying are right or wrong. We hope that things end up in a good way. I hope taxes don't go up, but I think they probably will. What Tim says is accurate, but that being said, it doesn't mean that they're not going to raise taxes because that's what politicians do. That's why I'm going to move to Puerto Rico so I can get out of most taxes. <laughs> but if you kind of look at it from the perspective of all these different things that may or may not happen, because we don't know, we can't predict the future. 
I actually disagree with Barb on this. I don't think we're going to have higher inflation right away. I think we'll have deflation. I think at some point we'll have high inflation, but just not right away. But I do want to talk about the implications for what's going on now with the economy. It's interesting to hear about history, but what are the real world implications for what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis for people? And Tim, do you want to start that off? Yeah. And I just want to make a point to the financial resiliency. Well, I mean, most Americans right now are, are basically living paycheck to paycheck, but people by and large are resilient creatures, which is, but they're nowhere near as resilient as they were 80, 90 years ago. And so during the Great Depression, you had most people who were farmers living like an agrarian type lifestyle, where now you go ask people where hamburgers come from and they say McDonald's, not even joking, like in schools. I mean, people are completely detached from reality. And I don't think the picture I was painting is actually even dark enough, evidenced by the fact that even most the White House is out coming out yesterday saying that there's going to be a quick economic recovery. I mean, what world are they on? Steven Mnuchin was out there two months ago saying unemployment numbers don't even matter. Of course, they don't when you're worth $50 million. I'm not sure what he's worth. Probably worth even more than that. But anyways, getting back to what was the question? What can people do today or what? uh, Yeah. What are things that everyday people can do today to become more resilient or to really kind of handle the situation in a way that helps them? Well, the first thing to do is probably turn off the news. I mean, keep listening to the monetary podcast, but the rest of the news, I mean, don't even turn on the TV. And I think a lot of people would be better off if they just didn't hear anything that was coming out from either side, because I think both sides are really one side and it's all really crap. And so, yeah, the first thing to do is, you know, turn off the TV, get some sort of community. I mean, I'm, even though I've got a tiny plot of land right now to grow stuff on, I really have no land, just got a, a patio and I'm growing food out of there. And so, We've seen now you know, different supply chain disruptions and all these scenarios are predicated on how things worked in the past. Well, in the past, we have a Ponzi scheme system in, in Social Security and to Medicare and basically everything else that's going on. It's all predicated on getting more and more debt. And so in the dot-com bubble, the baby boomers were still working by and large and, and they didn't really start retiring in mass until right about 2000. Well, the oldest ones were turning 62 in 2008. And so now instead of being a net benefit to the economy, the baby boomers are now a net drain in terms of social security and Medicare. And so as soon as you have these downturns, you're going to see there's no way the pensions are going to be able to recover from all this stuff, even in a good scenario. And so the demographic issues are way too much to overcome. Maybe they'll get lucky and all the old people will die of coronavirus or something. And maybe that's their plan. I don't know. There's literally no way to pay off all these entitlements that we've promised people besides taxing people, but there's no way we can raise taxes without completely crippling everything we've got going on right now. I see really no way out of it. So one thing I've been encouraging people to do since before the run-up was buying Bitcoin and getting into gold and silver. Kirk and I, through Innovative Advisory Group, were running a put option strategy where our clients did not to give a commercial for this, but did pan out extremely well compared to everybody else. But I wasn't being negative. Like, okay, we got most of the gain last year. We almost got none of the gain this year. A lot of clients are up 100% on their Bitcoin this year. Okay, I'm being negative, but you know we're still doing exceedingly well compared to everybody else. So while everybody else wants to clamor for a government bailout, I mean, this bailout stuff actually probably hurt what we're doing, but there's no way to get out of the situation that we're in right now. Now that 600 pound person's 800 pounds, and we're much more unhealthy, we're much more to the brink of overloading on all the you know bad food, so to speak, that we're eating. 
And I don't see any way out of this. And that's not to say that, you know, woe is me. I mean, I think I'm going to do extremely well through this. I think certain people who are resilient are going to do well through this. But the average rank and file person out there who's walking down Walmart with 20 cans of Mountain Dew, there's no way that they're going to be able to be prepared for what's coming. And they're going to want the government to help them. And government's somebody who breaks your leg and then you know, they give you a crutch and tell you how much they're helping you. Let's take a step back here because I do want to have some compassion for people who are struggling financially. And look, I want to be an optimist in this and feel that everyone has a chance to move themselves forward in small steps. And I think going back, Kirk, to where your question was, I think for a lot of the listeners, there's sort of some key basic blocking and tackling they should be thinking about. The biggest thing here is having cash reserves, having liquidity. And Tim brought up the fact that you know a lot of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. In good times, 36% of all Americans live paycheck to paycheck. But when you carve into that number, that number changes based on different demographics. That number is much higher in the African-American community and the Latino community. You know, We have to be aware that in good times, people struggle. In times like this, they become desperate and dire. And so that's why having some form of cash as a reserve is key to try to help yourself survive this. And I bring this up because one of the things that I did like about the CARES Act is it was about promoting liquidity. Its execution might've had challenges. We can have another show where we can debate what those challenges were. But I think in the scheme of things, what Minchin and the, the Treasury and Congress wanted to do was give a people a chance to have a cash reserve so that they can breathe. That brings you to the second part of this, which is everybody needs to go through their budget. I know I've been going through my own personal budget because my husband and I haven't been spending and we're floored with how we're not spending. And I've talked to a lot of people but we're in one group and there are other groups of people who are trying to figure out how they can afford where they are right now. So it's figuring out your budget and understanding your needs versus nice to haves. And then I think going to what Tim said, there is opportunity. And that's where if you're in that position, you can start to look around. But I really think of this as a bigger focus on cash and getting prepared to survive. Sorry, Kirk. No, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to reiterate your point, Megan. I think it's a great point, you know, having an emergency fund, having cash. I was just reflecting the other day on my expenses in the past month, and I think they're half of what they were. I don't spend extravagantly, but I know that my expenses are half. And that includes a new bike for my boys because they broke and they have nothing better to do than to ride a bike around. Talking about bikes, this is really crazy because I know Barb's talked about inflation and so on and sought after items. Bikes out here in California, nobody can find them for kids because everybody's bought up the inventory to give their kids something to do. So it's just sort of funny how some of that supply and demand kicks in during these crises. I actually forgot about this and was about to go for a bike ride. So now it's making me more jealous. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened to us. We were at a bike shop and there was a line, 10 people long waiting for bikes. And I think I got the last kid's bike that would have been remotely fit my son. You're winning the the Father's Day award this year then for that. (laughs) I will tell you that I was two people in line behind somebody who got the exact color my son wanted. So we were... (laughs) If we had got there five minutes early, we would have got yeah. his collar. But anyway. Oh, well, you know, at least he got the bike. He got a bike. Yeah, he's happy about it. So, Barb, what are some things that people should be thinking about right now, given the economic conditions we're in? Well, first off, I'd like to say I like the different perspectives here because I think we're clearly not all on the same page. And I think that's good for people to hear. 
I resonate a lot with what Megan said, which was the compassion, because we need to empathize with a large proportion of the population who have lost their jobs or who really are struggling, who lived paycheck to paycheck and now don't have a paycheck. So I think what the government is doing is necessary. We cannot let a 20% of our population end up on the street. Because the government probably made it illegal to be on the street, but just after they shut down their jobs too. (laughs) Tim, (laughs) I love you, really, I do. But (laughs) the government isn't all bad, okay? (laughs) Things are not black and white. There are always shades of gray. But the direction that I wanted to go with my comments are, we've talked about financial resiliency. We've talked about worst case scenarios. I didn't mean I think inflation is coming tomorrow because I agree with Kirk. Deflation is more likely in the near term, whereas inflation is a potential in the long term. But I think we need to think about the other side to this, which is many, many, many people need to think about how they can make more money. You can't live on a government handout. And this is one thing that I've talked about on previous podcasts. Everyone needs multiple streams of income. Maybe even if you were a restaurant worker or if you were in many of the jobs in the hospitality industry, and you're now furloughed and you're looking for not another job or something that's not there, now is the time to really get down and be creative and figure out ways that you can garner more income for yourself. And there has been a boom on Etsy, which is a platform for makers to sell things. I've had flyers in my condominium complex about people baking things and selling them. So another way to take charge of your own financial life is to be created to think about ways that you can bring in more money. Things like contact tracers, huge amount of jobs there. I don't really know what's involved there, but I know they are hiring. I know there are small components of the economy that are hiring. Instacart clearly is very big today. Whereas Uber is laying off, if you were an Uber driver, think about what other skills you might have that you might be able to monetize. Because that's another thing that you can do today that will carry over into the future when the economy does turn around and improve. These are all really important. And as the economy starts to progress in whichever direction it goes, one thing I want to talk about is really two things. Is One is the moral hazard problem, which is you know the government, you could agree or disagree with their response. You could do the same thing in 2008. But I think there's a moral hazard problem that exists right now. Take this to the investing side. There's actually a big problem right now in the bond market where the government is effectively supporting bond prices. So investors look at investing now and they don't take any risk. They just say, hey, there's no risk out there. The government's going to back it up. They're going to come in and buy and support prices. And that creates more of a problem. While it might solve a short-term problem, if you look at 2008, the Fed bailed out the economy or the banks primarily by printing money with their QE programs. And 
that should have been a short-term thing, but they couldn't stop it. And it did good things for the economy. You could argue that point back and forth. The asset prices went up. Let me reframe that. It did good things for Fortune 500 companies in helping boosting their asset prices up. Everyday Americans didn't see their wages go up at the same degree. It wasn't a uniform benefit. But I think the moral hazard problem back in 2008 is still a problem now. And that, I think, is something that certainly I'm concerned with. Kirk, let me explain what moral hazard means to those listeners who don't know. (laughs) (laughs) A moral hazard is an economic term. And it's the idea that one party is protected in some way from risk and will act differently if they didn't have that protection. So, for example, we encounter moral hazard with a tenured professor who can't get fired can teach whatever the heck he wants. Insurance companies worry that by offering payouts to protect against losses from accidents, they may actually encourage risk-taking. Yeah, I appreciate that, Barb. You're our encyclopedia of definitions here. (laughs) It's, It's a real issue in many levels of our economy and the markets. And it's just something people need to understand. I actually wrote a blog post about this a bunch of years ago, and I'll put a link to the show if you guys want to learn more about moral hazard and the implications in 2008. But before we kind of wrap up here, let's kind of talk about the inflation deflation conversation really quickly, because this is something that you hear people debating all the time. And usually it's, it's on the extremes. You know, We're going to have hyperinflation because we're printing money, or we're going to have deflation, the stock market's going to go to zero. Megan, what are your thoughts on this? We didn't hear from you yet on this. Look, I think that inflation and deflation are always concerns, right? The whole debate between the two of them. And I think that Americans in general vaguely understand both terms. They know it when they experience it. Most people are not prepared in either direction. So inflation, just to be the barb of this part of this, it's you know how quickly the price of goods in the economy is increasing. When there is a surge in demand, there's a drop in availability. You know, we didn't have it happen with toilet paper, but it was a little bit like that with toilet paper for a while there. Whereas deflation occurs when there's too many goods available and there's not enough money circulating to purchase those goods. And so people get very, very nervous about deflation because they think of basically Japan and Japan's lost decade where prolonged periods of deflation stunted economic growth and increased unemployment. So these are reasonable concerns to have. When you look at your own personal asset base, what you have to think about is one, having liquidity, right? And two, when you build models to see if your personal finances can withstand different environments, I always encourage people, particularly with inflation, to run scenarios with high inflation to see how their money would last. When you're looking at this from a personal finance perspective, if you run money out for 40 years to see if you can retire, but you do it at an inflation rate of one and a half percent, you will have a very different result if you run it out at three and a half or four percent, and you will find your money will not last. And looking at those two different types of scenarios can be really eye-opening when you're navigating your finances because it makes it clear that you have to plan for potential inflation on your portfolio. That's a really important point that people understand the inflation part. I would tend to disagree in terms of the inflation versus deflation. I'm more of a deflationist, but it's important that people understand those aspects. 
you're 100% right, Megan, that a lot of people don't understand. And I think there's this theme out there that everyone is afraid of inflation and they don't bother to analyze it. They just accept it as a norm. So whether it's 3% or 11% or 0%, not enough people understand it fully to understand the implications. Barb, what are your thoughts on this? I think the problem with deflation And that means pretty much prices are going down. Deflation causes people to not consume and actually slows down the economy because they think, well, why should I buy something now if the price is just going to be lower later? So it can have a very bad effect on the economy. And with deflation, your wages are also going to go down. So we don't typically in this economy, deflation can be very, very harmful. On the flip side, inflation can also be harmful because then prices are going up very, very rapidly. And so that causes a big strain on your budget. And many cases, your wages do not keep up with inflation. So that's why the government targets like a 2% inflation rate to keep the economy going. Too much on either side is not a good thing. Right now, although we've seen some inflation in certain pockets because demand has skyrocketed, for example, for food and groceries, bicycles, whatever, because demand has really surpassed supply in in many areas, the government does help to try. I mean, that's one of the Federal Reserve's charges to help keep prices stable. Whether they succeed or not and to what degree, again, remains to be seen. But you need to be mindful, like what Megan said was, if inflation does ramp up, how is your portfolio, your investment portfolio positioned to handle that? And for example, real estate and stocks typically do pretty well under inflationary circumstances. So the ultimate takeaway for investors is you want to have a diversified portfolio. And for consumers, you know, you want to be mindful if you're in an inflationary time, you want to stock up on stuff before prices surge. To your point, Barb, I couldn't agree more that one of the things that the Federal Reserve is scared of most is deflation, mainly because they don't have the tools to combat it, but also because it's self-reinforcing, just like inflation is. Having inflation causes more inflation. Having deflation causes more deflation because it's self-reinforcing. If we have deflation, people keep cash, they don't spend it, which causes the economy to decline, which causes more deflation. Just like inflation is the reverse. If people think there's inflation, they spend their money quickly, which causes more inflation. So there's that's kind of the theme that the Federal Reserve is playing on. But Tim, I know you've got strong opinions on this. Inflation, deflation, where do you think things are going to come out? Lots of stuff to chew on there. Yeah, I think I'm more in the camp of Kirk, where I think ultimately in the short run, you're going to see more of deflationary pressures. But however, eventually when there is inflation, or the more likely scenario is there's going to be deflation in some of the stuff that we don't necessarily need. And then there's going to be inflation and in probably some of the stuff we do need, like food. And then when there is inflation, what's the Fed going to do? They're absolutely stuck. What are they going to do? Raise rates to stop this? We already saw what a joke when they tried raising rates last time, what happened because they have no resolve. And if we can't lower the Fed's balance sheet and get things under control in the quote unquote greatest economy 
ever in the history of the world, when the hell are they planning on doing it? And so they're never planning on doing it. And the reason deflation is a problem is because our money is not really money, it's currency, but it's backed by debt. And so if you start having deflation, the entire house of cards starts to unravel because the problem is that it's backed by debt. And so we're out here talking about symptom after symptom after symptom after symptom and how can we cure this symptom? Well, the root cause is the fact is that the money is backed by debt is the root cause. And until that is addressed, there's no way to quote unquote, you know, fix any of these problems whatsoever. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, ultimately, and to Megan's point, if you run like somebody's portfolio at a 5% inflation rate, it's basically game over for 99.99% of people. And you can even argue whether or not even 5% is high. But for a lot of people, they're going to be wiped out. They're going to be wiped out whether or not we were even in good times before all this kerfuffle happened. We had, you know, what, what was it like 63% of Americans, 55 to 65, had $100,000 or less saved. They're going nowhere. There's no amount of, uh, let's just save a rainy day fund to all of a sudden be be where they need to be. Then there's also contrasting views because on one hand, we're saying, oh, well, we need to have people save money. And then, oh, if they save too much money, we can't have them do that either because deflation is bad. Well, the reason it's bad is because we're in this Ponzi scheme economy where the money is based off of debt. And so in a normal, healthy environment, people should be able to save money and it shouldn't absolutely collapse everything. And so we have to look at the root fundamental cause. I think one of you were saying something about you know inflation not being really that bad. Well, it was John Maynard and Keynes who said there is no subtler, no sure means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process in- engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction, and it does so in a manner which not one in a million is able to diagnose. And so the average person out there is an idiot. They have no idea. We could, let's go on the, on the street, ask somebody to define inflation or deflation and get into these topics. I mean, half of them probably can't even name the vice president right now. And so I know you guys are in more affluent areas. You know, Kirk is Massachusetts and around Harvard and Yale and all sorts of big institutions. And I think Barb and Megan are from Northern California, you know, probably Stanford, lots of smart people up there. And so we're in these little bubbles. Why don't you go out to Walmart and start asking people what, you know, inflation or deflation and this stuff means. And someone else had mentioned that the Fed's job was to keep prices stable. Well, their definition of stable is 2% a year. Well, you're getting robbed by 2% a year. That's not stable. Stable is zero. And so the Fed has done a great job to base in the currency something like 95 or 99% since they were enacted December 23rd, 1913. But till we get to the root cause, we're just dancing around with all these political football issues and people can run off hope and they can run off resiliency and just believing in people. But you know that's not enough. More a dire scenario where things are going. I mean, look at things are going pretty well in Venezuela about six, seven years ago. And now a lot of people are having to take their daughters and have to put them on the street in order to you know, have food. That's more of a dire scenario of what's going on. And talk about you know, boom in Etsy. There's also a boom on things like OnlyFans of people having to sell their bodies just in order to survive. And that's going on right now, whether people want to admit that or not. And it's all because people have no idea of how the economy really works. And if they are educated on economics are educated on the wrong version of economics, which is Keynesian economics, and they should be educated on Austrian economics, or they should be educated on both and be able to make their own informed decisions. But we're not taught this stuff in government schools. And it's really because of the lack of education or miseducation on lots of things that what is coming is 
I mean, you could put me in as president. Well, I guess you could next time because I'm, I'm going to be old enough by about like four or five days next inauguration. So that's a scary thought. But there's no way to stop any of this stuff. And so there's things you can do to make yourself better off. But let's say the inflation does start getting out of control. What's the Fed going to do? They're going to raise rates. How are they going to raise rates? It's going to absolutely devastate everything. So we're in this perpetual period where the rates can never go up. And that's why they're now going to have to start talking about the rates going negative, which I, the first time I mentioned that on the podcast was last June. And everyone laughed at me like, say, oh, yeah, I think the rates could possibly go negative. What an idiot. And yeah, look what now you know Trump is out there talking about having rates go negative. But I mean, it's not his call. The only reason they're doing that is because they think that now if it rates go negative, then now that's less interest we have to pay on the debt. And so it's all this Ponzi scheme economy. But now we people that need the money can't even go out there and get it. I mean, the banks are only lending money to all these big banks that are or big corporations that have government-backed loans. And you know, someone was talking about the CARES Act and how great it is to have compassion. Oh yeah, what a great deal we got. So the average family of four gets settled with $60,000 of debt, but we got $3,000 out of it or $3,400 out of it. Sounds like a pretty bad deal to me. But yeah, it's because people can't do basic math and people have been indoctrinated and have no idea what's going on and don't know history and don't know the things John's talking about is why what's eventually coming is really inevitable. And the longer we delay this day of reckoning, the more we're just going to make it even worse. And I haven't even gotten into like the really bad scenarios of where it's going. I just want to say one thing, Tim, really quickly, because you bet your comment about the stimulus checks and so on. I think one thing to remember in history is one of the things that FDR was able to do during the Great Depression was move certain things forward like Social Security. Social Security was not anything legislatively that could have been passed but for the Great Depression. So I hear you that you are frustrated that the government is giving out money. But there are a lot of good things that can come from this in helping people who need help. And, that and, and, how, long did, and how long did the Great Depression take? FDR did things that made the Great Depression take probably three times as long as it should. There was something called the Panic of 1907, which no one's ever really heard of. And there was also, I believe, one in 1919, which was a much greater decline. They let everything wipe out. And then they got the companies got to be rebuilt. FDR just... And the only reason that even passed is because FDR was trying to threaten the Supreme Court by stacking the Supreme Court by actually yes, I know. actually doubling the amount of people there. So they held this one guy, basically held a gun to his head and said, hey, you've got to go sign on to this stuff. But I'd argue that it's not constitutional. And then the first lady that collected Social Security basically paid nothing into it. And so it's a Ponzi scheme to begin with. There's no way out of it. And all Social Security is, is a office in West Virginia called the Office of the Debt. And it's a filing cabinet that's actually smaller than some of the filing cabinets I have here. And it's just IOUs in the filing cabinet is what holds this entire system together. Tim, what I asked you is to have some moderation in this and have compassion for people. Things are very tough financially all around this country. And I think to be basically demonizing the government for trying to help people, it's just not the right message. And I don't want to get into a whole debate with you on this. I just think sometimes moderation is really important. So all the big banks, everybody, they get we get $60,000 of debt, but we get access to $3,400. I mean, that doesn't sound like... I mean, so basically, they want to wrap this stuff around in really nice sounding names. Like, oh, we call it the CARES Act, and we're calling it the HEROES Act, and we're calling it the Patriot Act, where the average person is not going to be any better off for this. Yeah, there's some temporary help from the government from a problem that the government created to begin with. And the help that they're giving them is nowhere near what's going to be needed. And what's needed is to this entire system is bankrupt and basically needs to be restarted, but it needs to be restarted without a central bank that was there to design to enslave you to begin with. 
and the only way to get money into the economy is to get debt there. And we owe the debt to somebody. And so as private bankers, we owe the debt too. And there's no way to pay off the debt. And if there's no way to pay off the debt, and we always have to pay this tithe to the bankers, then we are basically underneath this high-tech slavery that, yeah, it doesn't sound really great, but sorry that I don't want to be a slave and that I actually know how the system works. It's really nice. Let's just give everybody a bunch of money. You know, I lost my job two years ago for trying to give a speech on Bitcoin. And then the government wouldn't allow me to work for about five or six months off stupid paperwork. So yeah, I know this more than most people, how this stuff actually works. And I also know most of these problems are caused by the government. Or most of these problems are caused by people trying to quote unquote help. And all the Federal Reserve has done is basically make people poor and poor and poor by printing all this money that then goes to the richest people in the world first. So then that way they get to buy up all the assets once they've been consolidated. And yeah, that could be really nice and just want to give everybody free money. But that's not how things work in the real world. And because of this, things are going to end up getting a lot worse. Or be stuck. There's no way they're going to be able to stop what they've already started. Let's wrap this up in the interest of time because I think this is a whole nother episode. And and I think the frustrations really kind of revolve around, you know, the government actions and you can agree or disagree with that. But I think we all have compassion towards the people out there that are suffering. That's what's really important. And I think for all the listeners, one of the important things is really to have compassion for your your other fellow man and woman as well, because whether you're struggling or not, other people are. And there are ways that you can actually help. You know, our job here is not to tell you how to help, but I have somebody I'm talking with now who's building hog traps to trap hogs in his area because I guess they're a nuisance in his state. And he's going to use the ones he traps and he's going to give out the meat to people who are not able to get food right now. So it just finding bring home the bacon, bring it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but it's just about finding, finding ways that you can help other people. And, and I say this in, cause I know there's a contrast of opinions here on the panel, but you don't necessarily have to rely on the government for that. You can do it yourself. That's something that you can do to help people that you know, local businesses, helping them, helping your neighbors, just finding people in your local community that you can help and not waiting for the government to help you, but actually do it yourself. And I think that's something that we can all do and we can all agree on that we can all kind of help each other. And I think we'll all be better off for it. So let's kind of wrap it up here. Barb, where can people find more about you? Hi, my name is Barbara Freeberg. You can find me at Robo Advisor Pros where I give reviews, news, advice on choosing the best robo-advisor and at barbarafreebergpersonalfinance.com. Thanks for having me, Kirk. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Barb. Tim, what about you? Where can people find more about you? You can find more about me at thelibertyadvisor.com for all the financial stuff and then for the libertyadvisorshow.com for all the links of my podcast and YouTube channels and BitChute and all those other sorts of goodies. Great. Thanks for coming on, Tim. And then Megan, what about you? Where can we Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, Kirk. You can find me on Twitter at Wealth Intersect or on the Forbes site at www.forbes.com backslash Megan Gorman. You can also find me at thewealthintersection.com. Thanks again. So that's it for the show this week. Thanks again for joining us on Money Tree Investing Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also check out our show at moneytreepodcast.com. On our website, you'll have access to our resources, show notes, and archive shows. Lastly, please leave the show rating and comments on the podcast app of your choice. When you subscribe and rate the show, it allows us to get better access to some of the top guests that you're going to want to hear. So remember, have a great week ahead. And remember, no one will care about your money like you do. So invest in your life. 
Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at MoneyTreePodcast.com for more free investing resources.